I want to talk in this session uh, about stewardship. Um, it's something I kind of uh, feel the Lord's been uh, touching in my heart a little bit. So if you'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll just pray for us as you're finding that. Father, we are so thankful for your mercies that we are found in you this morning through your Son. Thank you that you found us when we were lost, we were helpless, we were hopeless, we were without God and without hope in the world. What a terrible situation. Blind, lost, helpless, no hope. Dear God, what a marvelous thing that we are now found in you this morning, that we now not only have hope, we have life, we have eternity stretching before us. What an amazing thing. Even, Lord, when our hearts condemn us or when our, our minds lose focus on the reality and we come pressured by the concerns of this world. Lord, we have a hope that's steadfast and certain. It's not reliant on how we feel. It's reliant on solid historical things that someone shed their blood for us. And that one was your son. And he was worthy to break the curse of sin and death. And through him, we are now reconciled to the Father. Thank you so much that you've made these two days possible Lord, I pray that everything you want to do, Holy Spirit, everything you want to say, Holy Spirit, everything you want to minister to us, we open our hearts to you now. Lord, we, we need a shepherd. We need shepherding, Lord, and you are the great shepherd. The, your, the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. I won't be in want. And we ask you, shepherd father, to just take hold of our hands and our hearts through these two days and, and use them, Lord, for your glory. Build us up, strengthen us, help us to see it like it is. Let faith be kindled, be stirred. We're asking you, Lord, just to help us. I pray you'd help me just in the word now that this will really encourage and strengthen and energize and give focus. Lord, I, I can't do it, Lord, without you. I've just got words but I just give you uh, myself, Lord, and say, just, just do something through uh, me, Lord, this morning that will just encourage my brothers and sisters here that we might be strengthened in our faith and more readily equipped for the things you've got ahead for us in, in the coming days. We pray for that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 to 11. There are lots of verses in uh, the New Testament, particularly about stewardship or entrustment or being given a deposit. Uh, it's those sort of concepts. So the word stewardship is probably the one of sort of just heading this. Um, and this, these verses talk about stewardship and entrustment. So I want you just to notice those when we get to them. And Paul is instructing Timothy concerning his ministry and to how he is to view it. He's saying to Timothy, this is how I want you to view everything you do. There is, a, there, is a, uh, there is a philosophical background you need to have that shapes the way you think and the way you act and the way you speak and what you do with your time, what you don't do with your time. There's a philosophy behind it, Timothy, and this is what I'm uh, telling you about. And he says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God 
that is, by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, this concept of stewardship or entrustment, I think is whatever your gifting, your calling, your, your, your area of service, to understand what's behind that, what it is that you are doing, uh, I think is really important. And there's kind of just a few headings to do with stewardship I want to look at. And the first thing is stewardship is firstly and foremostly of a message. Stewardship is of a message. We have a stewardship from God. In verse 4 and verse 11, it's referred to there. Uh, not speculations, but rather a stewardship from God that is by faith. And then verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. And what Paul is saying is that we've, we've been given something that actually belongs to someone else. And what is it we've been given? Well, it's a bit like we are postmen or postwomen, and we've been given a parcel, we've been given a letter, a love letter from heaven. It's a revelation, it's something that someone else has written, someone else has communicated. It's complete, it's clear, and it's written by someone, and they have entrusted into our stewardship, the safe delivery of what they have written, what they have communicated. We do not have permission to interfere with what is in the letter. If your postman came to your door and there was a, a, a letter, he put through it, and then just as he was about to put through it, he just pulled it back, opened it, read it, and scribbled a bit out and says, I really don't think they ought to have said that to you, or I really don't, that's not put very well. There would be something of an affront that we would feel and something of an affront the person who sent it would feel. By what right does anybody change what is being communicated? And there is a sense, I think, that at the heart of everything we do, we are men and women under authority. We've been given an entrustment. We've been asked to be stewards of something that belongs to someone else. We've got this love letter in our hands, the Scriptures. God's revelation, God's unfolding, the mystery now made plain, as Paul talked about it. God has conveyed to us what he thinks, who he is, what he is like, what the problems are with humanity, and how to fix them. He's told us in so clear terms. Now, our struggle 
perhaps those of you who preach or disciple people or share the gospel anyway, our struggle might often be how do we articulate in our culture what is in the letter? Our struggle should never be do we agree with it or not? It's a different struggle. Our struggle is to find ways to help people read the letter, to help people understand what it is that God has said. Paul talks to Timothy and says, look, some people go off into myths or theories or speculative, what I call doctrinal gymnastics, and they're not helpful. They take leaders off into vain discussions. And what happens is you end up thinking about yourself, talking about yourself, and you lose sight of the world out there that needs saving. There's this spiral that goes on. And instead of thinking, what is best for those I'm leading? What is best for those that are not part of this church? How do I communicate to them what God has entrusted me with? What happens is you get, as Paul says to Timothy, endless genealogies, endless things. And it illustrates the point. There's no end. I mean, I've been a Christian for many years. There's no end to the latest book, conference, name, theory, speculative argument. And some people make a whole ministry out of just studying the latest thing. That is not what we've been entrusted with. That is not stewardship of a letter. We've got to keep the main and the plain, the main and the plain. It's something I feel really stirred about. Endless genealogies, endless myths, endless talking about speculative, muddled and confusing things. I feel that there's a need in my own life that the fear of the Lord never is something I lose sight of. What do I mean by the fear of the Lord? I mean that way of relating to him that whenever I hold the Bible or read it or think about communicating it, something within me trembles in a right sense. Dear God, you've entrusted to me the conveying of what you want to say. I'm very thankful that when I became a Christian in my early days, I was very influenced by the navigators um, and by um, scripture meditation. And I can remember after I had been saved just uh, a year or so, I was baptized in the Spirit and scripture came alive to me, the sense of God as my Father and enjoying His presence. I felt the nearness of God. And do you know what it did? It drew me more and more into devouring scripture. And I can remember I used to get up early in the mornings and I'd just have little verses. I'd work through different books, the Psalms or, or Isaiah or d- different uh, uh, minor prophets, just looking for little character cameos of who God was, things that God said about himself. And I'd think about them, I'd journal them, I'd write about them. And I spent many of those early years as a Christian pursuing who God was from the word. And I think uh, what that taught me was that actually getting to know what God says about himself is more important than what I might think about him. It really is. It's the defining thing. And actually, I think that when any of us preach or communicate or do any kind of ministry, the internal authority we exercise is directly uh, correlated to our submission to the authority of Scripture. Just think about that. The internal authority you and I carry is directly correlated to the way in which we submit to the authority of Scripture. This letter that we have been given to steward, to steward on behalf of someone else. And I find that even in 
my life now. I, 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 I'm pushed more and more. I want, to, I want to read books about God. I want to, my devotional life to be stirred about who He is. I want to, my thoughts to be captured by His character, His nature, His attributes, the things that are true about Him. I don't want to spend my time discussing things that might or might not be the case. I want to know Him. There's something about Him I want to be in my fascination. So what I read, what I spend my time praying about, the company I keep, the things that I want to be stirred with when I'm talking to other people, Lord, please help me to keep the plumb line that is constantly looking to who you are so that I might be a faithful steward with who you are, telling people who you are according to how you've revealed yourself. I mean, there's big issues we have to grapple with when we're conveying to people this letter, when we're trying to steward this, this letter, this message we've been given. The Trinity. I mean, how do you explain the Trinity? Sovereignty and human responsibility. How do you do that? How do you explain these things that are beyond vocabulary? And yet, their, their mystery made plain. Issues of heaven and hell, gender issues, issues around the atonement, creation, ethical conundrums and things that you think, and you watch things on television, you think, I didn't even know that happened. What, what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. How do I use the stewardship of, of this message to interpret that, to make sense of that? We, we, are, we are responsible for working our way through those things. And... For myself, I just want to think, Lord, I want to keep to the ancient paths. I want to clear the undergrowth that grows over the ancient paths. I want to keep them clear. I want to keep them safe for others to travel on. I want those ancient paths to mark the way. I don't want to make a new way. I want to think to myself, how have great men and women of God in the past handled these issues? Because that gives me a clue. That these things are, there's continuity. I remember being taught in a hermeneutics lesson, if you find something in Scripture that no one else has, you're wrong. <laughs> I need to remember I'm not as mature in God as I think I am. I'm really not. I'm not safe. I'm not safe. I am dangerous. God has made a huge uh, trust and gamble in entrusting me with stewarding the message he has communicated because I'm not safe. I need to watch my life and my doctrine really closely. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Watch yourself. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. You're not safe. That doesn't mean we're on a kind of a knife edge, but it does mean we're not to take ourselves, I'm not to take myself too seriously. And realize, you know, I'm not the final word on things. The Bible is. And I'd rather leave things even somewhat mysterious than try and reduce them all to something that's logical. For example, just looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. In the early church, there's all these, in the first few hundred years, these great big debates of, is Jesus of exactly the same stuff as the Father, this homoousios or homoousios? Is, which, which, is he exactly the same? Was Jesus even a man at all? Was he just a spirit? Are there three gods or one God? All of these great big things. And yet the, the, the way through this, brothers and sisters, is to just declare who God has said himself to be. 
Or we try, to, we try to think, well, we can't tell children that. Let's simplify it. We'll tell them God's like an egg. You know, shell, yolk, and, and white. No. Or he's like water, ice, and steam. No, he isn't. He's Trinity. He's mystery. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who he is. And it's keeping the main and the plain, even if we don't understand it completely. How is God completely sovereign, and yet at the same time, I have responsibility before him? How do I? I can teach that, but can I understand it? No. And attempts to simplify and make God domesticated is not being faithful with the message. We've got to let the mystery of God impact us without him becoming mysterious so that no one understands it. It's not a contradiction. It's an honoring of his mystery. If God was so small that we could understand him, he would cease to be God. He would cease to be worthy of worship. His very otherness is the thing that draws him to him, draws us to him. Spurgeon, I love Spurgeon's simplicity. And he said this when he was trying to dis- describe how to, how to communicate the, 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 the different concepts about God that are very difficult. He said, never let us fall into the false notion that if we magnify Christ, we are depreciating the Father. If any lips have ever spoken concerning the Christ of God so as to depreciate the God of Christ, let those lips be covered with shame. Whenever we have to praise God, what do we do? We simply say what he is. You are this or you are that. There is no other praise. We cannot fetch anything from anywhere else and bring it to God. The praises of God are simply the facts about himself. If you want to praise the Lord Jesus Christ, tell the people about him. I mean, it's so simple. And sometimes we think, how am I going to explain the Trinity to this person on the Alpha table who's looking at me, just kind of, what are you on about? Well, there's it's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. There's three, but there's all one. Tell it like it is. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Deliver the message. We're not responsible for what happens when the letter is delivered. We are responsible for delivering it. Are you with me? It's, it's, it's giving, giving it intact, making sure what is handed over is God's revelation of himself. Even if people say, I don't understand that. That is still what we're responsible to do. Not saying, well, okay, let me have another go, see if I can explain it a bit better. Well, we, Trinity is a bit difficult. Let's just go for a different thing. No, we give the message as we've been entrusted with it. So stewardship is of a message. Let me ask you brothers and sisters, in all that we are doing in serving God, is the simplicity still there in your faith? Is the simplicity still in our fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, where we, we, we faithfully tell people what he has revealed himself to be? That's, that's what we will receive well done, good and faithful servants for. Paul said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. I've stewarded, I've delivered the mystery that was revealed to me. So stewardship's about a message. Secondly, stewardship implies that something gets delivered. And the important thing about stewarding the gospel is not only that it arrives intact, but that it arrives at all. If we've been given something to deliver and it just sits in a post bag... And the good intentions were to deliver it, but it never got to the person it was intended for. 
there's something inefficient. If you put a first-class stamp on a letter, you expect it to be there the next day. God has given us a commission and expects something to be done with it. He, expect, he expects there to be a delivery of that which he's stewarded, entrusted to us, what he's given us as a stewardship. And I would say this, as I've, I've observed my own life, I'm trying to look at my own life and think, Lord, what, what makes me ineffective in the stewardship that you've given me and the entrustment you've given me? I think this, whenever I notice a loss of or a lack of intimacy with God, reverence for God or enjoyment for God, it will be reproduced in then how I view other people. If I'm not drinking in the love of God for myself, I'm not going to pour it out to other people. I will become a sterile, empty vessel. In verse 5, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, the goal of our message is love. People around us should feel God's love because they meet us. And it's when the love of God grows cold in our hearts that actually we cease to be those, uh, those good messengers. We cease to be those who are stewarding and giving to others the things that God wants them to. The Lord should, f- should feel our affection firstly for himself and then others get the overspill. The kind of love that is talked about here, Paul says, comes from a pure heart, that's intimacy, comes from a good conscience, enjoyment of God, and comes from sincere faith, reverence for God. Those are Holy Spirit fruits. We need drenching in the Holy Spirit so that he pours his love through us to other people, don't we? I I need the Holy Spirit to love people through me. I need him to do something in my heart. And when Paul says to Timothy, if if you get fascinated by novelty, you get fascinated by some personality or conference or theological thing, it can become an idolatrous thing and you end up talking about that and thinking about that and loving that more than you love the Saviour. Don't let yourself start loving the theology of it. Love God. Let God be the one who, who ravishes your heart. I need to constantly be saying that to myself. When my love grows cold... In verse 7, what happens is we aim for satisfaction with what we do in ministry, desiring to be teachers of the law. And desire for for ministry as fulfillment and success in church leadership grows in place of satisfaction with God. Who we are in God is much more important than what we do for God. And that love is the thing that, that must flow out of us. You know, there's thousands of folk all around us, thousands of them, who need a simple stewarding of a simple ancient gospel flowing from hearts that simply feel love for them and their condition. It's simple. The mystery's been made known. I remember just recently I was, uh, there's a a place uh, where we go swimming and there's some saunas there and whatever, and I was sitting in the sauna and this guy came in and uh, I was just talking to him, and uh, it was obvious that he'd, he'd uh, got some physical um, challenges. And he said two years ago, he's, he was only, I think, 38. Two years ago, he'd had a stroke, a massive stroke that left him paralyzed down his left side. And he couldn't speak very well, so we were having to sort of, you know, just listen very carefully to what he said. The same day he had his stroke, his wife left him, took the two children, and he'd not, he didn't see them for the first six months. Do you know, I sat in that 
place with him, and I thought, God, I wish I could bring him to Christ now. I wish I could. I mean, I'm not very good at one-to-one personal evangelism. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I never, I'm not good at starting conversations, all that sort of thing. I'm really not good at it. But something within me thought, Lord, my priority must be that what I've, been, what I've received, I've got, to, I've got to be passionately concerned with how do I reach people like that? How do I reach people who've got, no, who've got nothing? He's got nothing left. And here I am sitting in there with him, and I'm the richest man in the world. I've got my sins forgiven. I've the love of the Father upon my life, and I'm going to heaven. I have an inheritance eternally. I think if that is not what needs to be in my focus, I don't know what is. Everything else is window dressing, isn't it? Then to bring thousands and thousands of people like that to know Jesus. Let the message get delivered. Let it be the thing that just encaptivates. I think I should be thinking about who am I preaching to? How am I helping them? How can I, how can I help this person who's perhaps feeling lonely or sad or guilty or ashamed or bereft of hope? How can this message change their life? That's the thing that should consume us. It's the thing that we should be constantly be giving application to. And yet it's so easy in church life to get sidetracked onto this issue or that issue. And they're all interesting, but they're not the point. They're not the point. The point is all those houses we can see out of the windows here have got people in who need Jesus. And the only way they're going to get to know Jesus is if the love of God so drenches my heart that I'm compelled to go out there and be as effective as I can be under the power of the Holy Spirit. Can't do it through effort, can't do it through just trying harder. It's a Holy Spirit thing. We can't produce any fruit unless the Holy Spirit does it through us, delivers the message. Do you want to deliver the message more this year? I, I want to see more people saved this year. Across all the church, I, I just want to hear story after story of someone who didn't know Jesus, now they know him. It's not just that we have a message, we've got to deliver it. I need more love of the Holy Spirit to do that. I don't need more gifts. I don't want to be a clanging gong that just prophesies at will. I want to have love. Why did Paul say, if I, if I can prophesy but I haven't got love, I have nothing? Why didn't he say it the other way around? Why didn't he say, if I love but I don't prophesy, I have nothing? I'll tell you why he, he said that. He's, he knows this. Once you've got a gift, you can just keep exercising it. Love needs constant nurture. Love drains. We are sapped of love so we can walk through the depths of humanity all around us and we're not touched. Only when the love of Christ gets our hearts and so breaks us does love and gift come together and pow, there's some real kingdom happening. And I'm preaching to myself, brothers, I need a fresh touch of the love of God for those who don't, need Jesus, who don't, who don't know Jesus. I need that and I can't work it up. I can only say, Father, would you do your loving of this world through me? I'm a thirsty soul who wants to deliver the message, not just have a message. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all going to be used in the same way. Different ones of us got different gifts and different strengths. And I'm not saying this so that we all go, goodness, yeah, I need to share my faith more. It's not, that's not the point. Your way of contributing to evangelism will be different from someone else's. It's, it's, the point is that we know that it's something that we 
are being freshly commissioned to do. To, have, to be able to explain a reasonable faith in authentic culture. Sometimes we think people, oh, I'm like this anyway. I think if there's a guest comes to church or I see someone who's, who's a non-Christian, I think, oh, what are they going to make of this? How, is this going to make sense to them? Are they going to be put off? And all the things that I think will put them off, don't. And all the things that I think, oh, this is good, they're the things that they pick up on. And it's like, it, it's, so I think, oh, if someone prays in tongues or prophesies, will they think we're mad? Well, they don't seem to mind if we're mad. What they need to know is, do you love me? <laughs> as long as people have things explained to them, they seem to be okay with it. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, do they understand that? Did they, understand? they don't need to understand everything. What they do need to know is when they walk in whatever context, they need to know, I feel the love of God in this place through these people. Is that not, isn't it simple? But dear God, how we need a fresh baptism in the Spirit that our, our hearts are firstly ravaged by His love for us, and the overspill of that go, cannot help but go out into the context where we find ourselves in. No wonder Paul said, if I have not got love, I'm just like a, a noisy thing. Love comes from the Spirit. We, we mustn't think, well, gifts of the Spirit, love is something else. No, <laughs> the Holy Spirit produces His love in our hearts so that when people meet us, they feel loved just by encountering us. Wouldn't that be an aspiration for this year? That everyone you meet, from the checkout uh, person at Tesco's, to the, to the petrol pump person, to, the, to your neighbours, to your colleagues, to your family, to, your, to, to, to everyone you meet in church life, that when people meet you, they come away feeling the love of God. I mean, what an aspiration for 2013. That can only come through a drenching of the Holy Spirit. That's why the, it says of the early disciples... They, they knew they were disciples by how much they loved one another. There was, a, there, was a, there was something of God's love that was almost tangible. More and more people just were drawn into it. You know, this world is a very lonely place. It's so lonely. I was listening, um, saying that Christmas, it's something like, I don't know if I get the figures exactly right, but this Christmas they estimated one million elderly people did not have face-to-face -face contact with another human being on Christmas Day. In this nation, one million. We have we have a stewardship to deliver to such as that, and I, I I suppose the reason I'm saying this at the beginning of the year is I think if relational mission means anything, it is a mission to people that don't know Jesus. That's got to be the thing that constantly we are compelled. Whether we feel we're any good at it or not, I don't think really actually matters. Because God can use our weakness and make it fruitful. God's not looking for you to be the, uh, a vacuum cleaner salesman who kind of, you know, I had someone knock at the door the other day trying to sell me something. And I honestly thought, I've never heard anything like this. I just couldn't even get a word in edgeways. I couldn't even say no. I just, I just let him, I just, well, I couldn't stop him. He just talked and talked and talked and I didn't buy it in the end anyway. But he told me every reason why I should. I thought, I don't want to be like that. I want to love people. 
I don't want to just pour in as many verses as I can and think if I get as many verses in, as many spiritual truths in and tell them they need to repent and then they'll come to Christ. They just need love and a little bit to start with of content and God can do the rest. Stewardship, next thing, stewardship requires that God places trust in his church. This is, this is a bit, I find this a bit scary. Galatians 2 verse 7 says, Paul's reflecting about his um, visit to Jerusalem. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So Paul and Peter had their own fields or callings assigned to them. Brothers and sisters, so do you. So do we. We all have a field, an entrustment given to us. God has trusted you and me in a town, an area, a nation, a door of opportunity, a particular gifting set within your community, within your area of influence, And your calling and my calling is not someone else's calling. It's not transferable to someone else. You and I have been chosen specifically and given a stewardship for something that God wants us to do with our lives. It's a privilege. It's a glory. There's an honor to it. There's a fear and a trembling with it. There's something we need to understand. We have been entrusted. We are servants as well as we are sons. He is a master as well as a father. We have a share in the family business. He doesn't any longer just call us servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. We've been brought into the family, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact we have a master who's, who's given us a commission, just as he gave Paul a commission and Peter a commission. What's more, everyone in our churches are all entrusted with some kind of stewardship. And everyone in our churches needs to know that they have a stewardship, that their life lived for God can make a substantial difference for the kingdom. Many times, I know if you're like me, you think, what difference can I make? I'm, such, I'm so insignificant. I'm not very impressive. I can't make much of a difference. Listen, there's an old African proverb that says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito. <laughs> right? There's size when it comes to impact isn't relevant. It's being faithful with what we've been given. Some of us think also where we, we lose motivation or we kind of, uh, and often in church life, if, if you can see people's heads going down. They think, well, I'm serving. I don't know if it's really making any difference. Interesting, John Calvin said all those years ago, he said the decline of the church is more to, due to laziness than wickedness. <laughs> I mean, stewardship actually is a responsibility. We talk to ourselves and say, now come on, my soul, wake up. You've got a commission. God's chosen you. He's entrusted you with something. Shake off laziness. Shake off things that would, that would drown my zeal and fervor for him. Ever since we, we help people understand they've been, uh, they've been given a stewardship. Their job is not, necessar- is not necessarily also their calling. It might be. But it might be that their job is how they make money and they've got a calling as well that's from heaven that's something separate to that. There's a calling that might not even be what you're humanly gifted to do. Many of the people in Scripture, when God called them, they weren't gifted to do what God called them to do, but he chose them. He chose them. 
We're all like parts of a body. We're placed where our creator wants us to function. We're all different. We mustn't compare each other with each other because that weakens us. Comparison weakens us, doesn't it? If you compare yourself with someone else, compare your church with someone else's church, it's a downward spiral. It will never lift you up because you will always compare yourself with something better that will make you feel worse. It's human nature. I'm not as good as I should be. Look at them over there. They're much better than us. Down the, down the plug hole you go. You and I have been given a stewardship, and that's the thing that God is looking for, being faithful with what we've been given to do. We will find different expressions of the that for which Christ took hold of us as we go through life. I was at one stage leading the team at Lowestoft Community Church. I've now handed that over to Ben. I'm now pursuing um, working with relational mission, putting my focus into that. The calling is the same. I'm just out working in different ways. Some of you will be going through different seasons of ministry. You might have been leading one thing one season, now you're leading something else, or now you're, you're focusing in a different way. The stewardship of your calling will take different shapes through your life. But the important thing is from the day you become a Christian to the day God calls you home to glory, there is no retirement on this earth. We have been given a stewardship and it's outworked in different ways. And it's so important we understand we've been entrusted. I would really recommend uh, this book by Wayne Cordiero, Sifted. And he makes uh, a quote here to do with the uh, outworking of our calling. And <clears throat> he says, It may sound strange at first, but in any true ministerial calling, there must always be a measure of humility. Not timidity. Humidi humility and timidity are not, synonym not synonymous. Humility is expressed in teachability instead of gullibility. One man defined humility as the gentle bough of a branch laden with fruit. Humility is also the strength to do what God has assigned you to do. It isn't necessarily what you're capable of doing. You may be capable of accomplishing much, but the question remains, how much has God assigned to you in this season of your life? Remember this, in the end, God will not hold us accountable for how much we have done. He will hold us accountable for how much of what he's asked us to do we have done. Ultimately, our calling is not ours to decide. After all, it is God who calls us, and he does not call us on the basis of any unique or special talents, abilities, or skills. <clears throat> our calling begins with God's dream for our lives, his plans and purposes, which exist long before they are our dreams. God invited us to participate in his work and with... Sorry, God invited us to participate in his work with him, not the other way around. God is in charge, not you or me. We are merely along for the ride, and God will lead us in a new direction when the time is right. When you are humble, you, are no, long, you no longer see yourself as indispensable. Too many leaders get caught up in the practical needs and demands of ministry and forget that it is God's purposes and plans that shape our calling and ensure our success. Many leaders take this upon themselves, believing that the success or failure of a church plant or the discipling of people and saving of lost souls is ultimately determined by their efforts. A humble leader realizes that the success of his dream ultimately rests on God's shoulders. It's to do with being faithful, not successful. God has taken a big risk putting you and me in leadership, hasn't he? Huge risk. I wouldn't have done it. But he has. He's placed something specific into our hands, and in one sense, he's taken his hands off. 
And he said, right, you steward that. I'll be with you, I'll help you, but you're responsible. I used to feel guilty for the things that I am not. Now I've come to realize that I am actually who I am. There's things I need to improve on. There's things I will continue to try to improve on, and they will never change because that's just my dysfunction. I am what I am. But I realize now that God is not looking for me to be someone different before he can use me. What he's looking for is for me just to humbly say, Lord, this is what you got when you saved me. I'm willing for you to change me, do the best, <laughs> do what you can with this broken up old thing. But Lord, ultimately, I am willing to be faithful. I'm willing to be faithful. I can do obedient. I can't always do radical or successful or clever, but I can do obedient. And I think God wants that. Just simple. Can you, be, can you and I just say this morning, yeah, Lord, I want to be just obedient. I want to be obedient through this year. Now, the last thing that stewardship is, is this. Stewardship is corporate. And I just want to just finish with this, just looking a little bit about us as relational mission, just to, to, to make some comments that I feel perhaps will help us as we go forward. In 2 Corinthians 10:15, it says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Now, what does faith mean there? Our hope is as your faith increases, our area of influence may be greatly enlarged. Well, faith there, I think, means what we as churches are capable of in God. So it could read, as I would see it, our hope is that as what you are capable of in God increases our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Relational mission, if I can make it really clear, in our early days, this is not my thing. Right? It's our thing. It's our thing. It is a area of inf- our area of influence. Our area of influence. And I believe there's things that God wants to put into us corporately that are also a corporate stewardship, that every one of us is responsible for getting hold of and faithfully stewarding in the various geographic areas, the various areas of gifting, the various things, the various nations, the various things at local level. There's things we together are called to do. And as we become more capable in God together, so the sphere, the field, the area of influence will increase. It really is not a case of saying, well, what's Mike and the team going to do in order to expand things? Nothing, right? This is something we are caught up in together. And as our faith grows, as our faith grows, so our area of influence will increase. Now, yes, I've got a role perhaps in helping, uh, helping lead it and steward it and provoke it and, and, and just tend it and put a plumb line to it and buy the grace gifts that I've been given just to try and help it be healthy in a certain way. That's what all the other Ephesians 4 ministries will be doing just to try and make sure our churches are built well and founded well and flourish well. But that's, that's not the same as being, uh, it being my thing. It's our thing. And if you consider yourself to be part of it or you're looking to be part of it, then let me say being part of it means this. It, you are entrusted with something from heaven. It's a sphere that we will be given that we are responsible for stewarding. Now, there are times when in Paul's ministry, yes, he did have his own specific thing. He said, I want to go to Spain. I want you to help me. And there will be things whereby perhaps 
uh, we as a team, or I might say to you one day, we really want to touch this nation, can we get behind it together? Yes, of course there will be those sort of things. But what I want to just kind of provoke you with, in terms of the corporate dimension of, 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 of this stewardship, is this. There may come, and I think that the... the I think yet we've still got to see the, the genius of clusters beginning to work. I think clusters are a brilliant idea, and I'm so grateful to Morris for his... He's much cleverer than me at thinking of things like that. And, and the whole idea of clusters, clustering churches together, uh, three or four churches perhaps in a geography, in an area geographically, or clustering together around churches with similar um, uh, passions or similar demographics, like a city church or a student church, or clustering around certain areas of... Uh, other nations, I, I don't know, or, or even some kind of clustering around relational connections. Some of you are in clusters already and you're thinking, yeah, they really work, I love it. Others you think, oh, I'm in a cluster, but I don't like it. Others of you think, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't even know what a cluster is. <laughs> the, point, the point is this, clustering together as churches, I think it's going to become really important as a strategy for two reasons. One, Every one of us, if we've been given a stewardship together collectively, every one of us needs a personal oasis of fellowship with brothers at a smaller level where we can be energized, held accountable, and we can be, we can be provoked and challenged and loved and cared for and nurtured. Every one of us needs that. Yes? Every one of us needs that. And the only way we're going to deliver that is on a smaller scale, reproducing. It's a bit like kind of cell groups in church. It's got to be a context where every one of us connect at a very intimate level with friends who we feel very comfortable with. And that's one thing. The second thing is this. Clusters, I believe, can provide a context for collaborative mission to begin to be birthed. Now, what I mean is this. I believe that in the future, if, if what we are becomes more movement-like rather than organization-like, which would be my prayer, then the initiative and the strategy will most often come bottom-up, not top-down. If you look at the Acts of the Apostles, Paul had his plan and he went and did what he did and the churches got caught up with that. But what you found was this, often the churches that he planted or the churches that connected with him, God then began to blow upon them and give them uh, initiatives give them dreams. There was whole things that Paul had no idea. He certainly didn't start it. He, it. he was just aware of things happening. And I believe that what God wants us to get a grasp of is this. Please don't think that relational mission is something we come to, we listen to what's said, and then we choose to get involved or not. Relational mission is this. There's a groundswell of Holy Spirit initiative that will be taking place amongst all of the churches and Ephesians 4 ministries, yes, come alongside to encourage, to put a plumb line, to make sure it's built well. But what is God saying to you where you live? What is God going to be saying to you in your context? What is God going to be shaking the tree in, in the nation where you're particularly involved in? Those are the things I'm looking for because it's a collective stewardship. It's something that as our faith increases, so our area of influence will increase more. I don't want this to be a top-down thing. I want it to be something where we, we sense the Holy Spirit bringing fresh initiative by prophetic word and then a collaborative mission breaking out as faith grows in those areas where you're living. Just ask yourself this question right at the moment. What is it missionally where you live that you're, that you're believing God is saying to you? perhaps in the cluster you're in or in the area with churches around you, you think, well, we haven't got anything yet. Well, there's the, there's the, the, the point. 
It's something that I think God, over this next year or two, I believe God's going to begin to uh, get more of us on some journeys of advance that we didn't expect. And I believe that's actually the flavor of what apostolic ministry should look like. It is about trying to be a movement, not an organization. I don't want to create an organization. Does that make sense? I don't want an organization. I want a movement. And a movement, I was quite, I was quite pleased the other day. I, I had some sort of help talking to someone about sort of organizations or big churches and movements. And they said to me, most movements are led by unimpressive people. I thought, great, I, I can do unimpressive. I can do that. Whereas often mega churches or organisa- organisations are led by very highly gifted, highly competent, very, very, very um, standoutish people who people gather to to listen to and admire. Nothing wrong with that. But often it leads, leaves the person thinking, well, I'm just following that person's vision. There's nothing wrong with that in this context. I'm not criticising. I'm just saying, I don't, A, I'm not that, and B, I don't want to be that. I want us to be a movement of unimpressive but obedient people. Because actually then the the life can begin to come out of the breadth uh, of who we are. And it all comes back to this thing of stewardship. I'm not being entrusted with something, and then I kind of come down like Moses from the mountain, say, this is where relational mission is going next. And everyone goes, ooh. No, it's not going to be like, it really is not like that. That's awful. I want to be the one who goes, ooh, when I listen to what's happening. I want to be thinking, man, how do you organize this? You don't. You let it run. You let it run. You create supply lines to keep it healthy, but you let it run. And even Paul said, well, yeah, but some people, he said, it's what's happened to me. Some people have gone off. They've done their own thing. They're preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. But what does it matter? At least Christ is being preached. He understood movement. He didn't say, let me keep it all together. What do they think they're doing? He said, let it go. Let it go. If people choose to be disloyal, that's between them and God. That's what Paul was saying. I'm not going to try and control everything. Some people have got their own agenda. They take and use everything and then they spit it out and do what they want to do. At least the gospel's being preached. Man, that's such a generous attitude, isn't it? Wow, how do you get to that? You get to that when you understand it's a collective stewardship. It's not one man's thing. And Paul thought he wanted movement. He wanted movement. And it's moving, even if some of it's not so healthy. Well, at least it's moving. Now, those of you who are perfectionists will be really struggling with what I've said. Because <laughs> you think, yes, but you can't just let it run. Listen, I am a little bit of a perfectionist. A little bit. But I've realized this. I can't do it. So I might as well just surrender now. And say, Lord, I will play my part because I know if I do what you've told me to, this will run and run and run. This will run and run. Hear me. This will run and run and run. I believe that. I don't believe we've yet touched the outer fringes of what this could look like. But it won't become a big organization that all roads lead. Oh, look what Mike's built. Mike's done nothing apart from be faithful, just like John's been faithful, just like Goff's been faithful, just like Steph's been faithful. All of us have got a stewardship collectively in this. You've all got shares in this. It's a cooperative. Do you, do you get this? I'm saying some really important things philosophically here about the future. And it might be messy and it might be a bit muddled and it might, there might be times when this 
someone does this and oh dear, that's why are they doing? That's not healthy. That's what Paul spent his life doing, charging around from one disaster to the next, putting it right. You know, if we wait till all the ducks line up and we, or we only press the button when we've got it all, re- all ready, we'll be doing that till glory. There are thousands of people out there that need Jesus. Thousands of them. I'd rather take the risk. I'd rather take the risk and it be a bit messy and we have to multiply more and more Ephesians 4 ministry, which is where I think I need to give most of my time to train up and release and identify gifting amongst us and release it and release it and release it so that we can go and go and go and go and go. It's a collective stewardship. 2 Timothy 2, 2, and I'll finish with this. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It is the DNA of apostolic ministry. It's not holding it all in, it's letting it go. And letting it go to the next generation, the next generation. One of the things that we'll be doing more and more in the next two or three years is investing time, money and energy and diary into training younger people rather than even just celebrating what we presently are. Why? Because that's the future. That's the future. And I'd rather us even remain a bit hidden if it means, if we have to choose between doing something that makes us look kind of, I don't know, noticed, or doing something that invests in the life of people that as yet are hidden, but if we put the foundations in now, they will run further and further and further and further than we ever imagined. I know which one I would rather choose. You can have both. But I'm saying if you have to choose, I want relational mission. I know that I'm speaking on behalf of the team completely. We are absolutely on the same page with this stuff. Absolutely. The people who particularly are working closely, we are absolutely on the same page with this. This is not about building something top down. This is about releasing something that comes grassroots up in a healthy way. Now, we've got just a few 15 minutes or so before... Uh, lunch. I, I, I'd like us just to pray for one another and that you just kind of pray for this stewardship that God has, has given us, that, we, that, that, that God will help us to be really faithful and to philosophically kind of get it so that we understand that while we're trying to make it work, while we're trying to get clusters effective for everybody and, you, and some of you think, well, yeah, but I don't really feel part of relational mission. I haven't got any friends yet. Give it time. Right? Give it time. How many of you have ever implemented a new cell group system in your church? Right. How many found that? One of you. Come on. <laughs> You're all not admitting it because you know it's really hard, isn't it? You think nobody, some people like the group, some people don't like the group, some people don't understand what the group is, some people leave. Listen, this is a bigger version because this is helping leaders. And the trouble with leaders is they've got very high standards, they're very picky. You know, it's not quite what I thought it would be. No, it's not what I thought it was going to be either. But it's what we've got. It's, it's, it's what we've got. And if we don't work at it together, it won't become all it can be. I haven't got all the answers. I don't even know all the questions. So being in this, being in this relational mission will mean you have got something to bring into solving the way forward. It's not a consumer mentality. It is let me help you. It's, it's let me help you 
with this stewardship we've got together. That's, can you just believe for the possibility of a movement? Just say that word, movement. I mean, doesn't that get your juices flowing? I, I kind of like that. I've been looking a little bit about John Wesley and just the, 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 the movement he birthed, just the class. It was clusters. It was clusters. That's all he did. He just sat them down. They asked each other questions. They did mission. Saved the nation. Simples. It can be done. I mean, he's done it. Bef- it's been done before. Wesley's genius wasn't his preaching or his impressiveness. Whitfield was a better preacher. Wesley's genius was he didn't hold it. He organized it and he let it go. Movement. Shall we stand together? I've got a clue how to apply this. So I'm going to just ask prophets and evangelists, just be stirred to pray, prophesy, just in these few minutes. We'll pick up on it in the prayer sessions, no doubt. But I I just want to say, just get with two or three other people and just pray for this stewardship that we've been given. Pray for movement. Pray that God will get hold of us and put something right through us that we all own collectively and we understand collectively or what we don't understand. We know we're on a journey together collectively and it's not top down, it's bottom up. You can remember that, can't you? Not top down, bottom up. And let's, let's pray for that together. Are you, are you with me yes. in what yes. I'm saying? Because yes. yeah. I, I kind of, if you're not, this is going to be a bumpy ride. If you are, it's still going to be a bumpy ride, but at least we're on the same journey. Yeah? So let's get in two and threes and just pray it through. And then uh, prophets, evangelists, if there's anything you want to pray just as we finish, let's just do that.